0: All right, take a seat. If you need some notes, they're in the front and they're in the back. You need a Bible tonight, so if you didn't bring one with you, grab one from the seat underneath you or the seat in front of you. Wednesday nights, we are talking about the five solas of the Reformation. And we started last week with Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. We talked about that being... The formal principle of the Reformation, um, the the idea and the doctrine and the teaching that sort of undergirded everything that happened uh, with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the other Reformers. Tonight we're going to talk about sola gratia, grace alone, and what does that mean and why is it important. Uh, We're going to take a break for two weeks. Next week we're going to pack boxes for Operation Christmas Child. The week after that will be Thanksgiving, so we'll be off two weeks. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, Sola Fide and uh, Sola Christus and Sola Deo Gloria. So we've got uh, three more after we come back from a break. I want to start by telling you the story of John Newton. Some of you have seen that. Some of you have seen the movie uh, Amazing Grace that came out a couple of years ago, so you're, you're familiar with this. Um, I looked up a couple of sources about John Newton, and I thought I would kind of pull from those and and tell you my own sort of version of adding all those accounts up, and then I just found one that was really good, and so I'm just going to read it to you, and I'll try to make it not too much of a boring reading, Uh, but I like this summary of his life. John Newton was raised in a Christian home in which he was taught verses of the Bible, but his mother died when he was only 6 years old and he was sent to live with a relative who hated the Bible and who mocked Christianity. Newton ran away to sea. He was wild in those years and was known for being able to swear for 2 hours without repeating himself. That's pretty impressive. He was forced to enlist in the British Navy, but he deserted. He was captured and beaten publicly as punishment. Eventually, Newton got into the Merchant Marine and went to Africa. In his memoirs, he wrote that he went to Africa for one reason only, quote, that I might sin my full, unquote. Newton fell in love with a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was cruelly treated. Uh, Excuse me, he fell in, not fell in love. I I jumped lines there. (laughs) Different story, huh? Yeah, different story. He fell in with a Portuguese slave trader, in whose home he was cruelly treated. This man went away on slaving expeditions, and when he was gone, his power passed ...to his African wife, the chief woman of his harem. She hated all white men, invented her hatred on Newton. He says that for months he was forced to grovel in the dirt... ...eating his food from the ground like a dog. He was beaten mercilessly if he touched it with his hands. In time, thin and emaciated, Newton made his way to the sea where he was picked up by a British ship making its way up the coast to England. When the captain of the ship learned that the young man knew something about navigation, as a result of being in the British Navy, he made him a ship's mate. But even then, Newton fell into trouble. One day, when the captain was ashore, Newton broke out the ship's supply of rum and got the crew drunk. He was so drunk himself that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, Newton fell overboard and he would have drowned if one of the sailors had not quickly hauled him back on board. Near the end of one voyage as they were approaching Scotland, the ship ran into bad weather and was blown off course. Water poured in, the ship began to sink The young profligate was sent down into the hold to pump water. The storm lasted for days. Newton was terrified. He was sure the ship would sink and he would drown. But in the hold of the ship, as he desperately pumped water, the God of all grace, whom he had tried to forget, but who had never forgotten him, brought to his mind Bible verses he had learned in his home as a child. The way of salvation opened up to him. He was born again and deeply transformed. He became a preacher after that. He became a hymn writer after that. We remember him for the the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, He helped lead the fight to abolish slavery and to bring it into slavery, and God used him in remarkable ways. I think most of us, when we think of John Newton, if we know of him and anything of his story, we think of the hymn, Amazing Grace. And when you read the words to the hymn, Amazing Grace, and you think about Newton's life and some of the things that we described here, about deserting from the military, about uh, being a drunkard, about being legendary for how he could curse, about the time that he spent in Africa, about all the rotten things that filled his life. And then you think about a man sitting down on the other side of those things saying, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Those are powerful, powerful words. And you may be wondering, why didn't we sing that song tonight? You dummy, we should have put that into the hymn list. It would have fit perfect. And I had it in the hymn list originally, and then I took it out. And the reason I took it out as I looked over my notes was the hymn in American culture has largely lost its meaning. You hear it all the time, everywhere, on the lips of people who have never, ever experienced God's grace. I think about times I've, I've watched, for example, uh, New York City September 11th memorial services that have been televised. And you think about the things that happen in those interfaith services. I remember one that took place uh, in the museum down below Uh, next to some of the rubble that's still there on display, and they had every religion imaginable represented up on the stage, and part of the Christian contribution to that service was Amazing Grace, the song, and as you looked across the panel, every one of them sang it. They all knew it. The tune is familiar. Everyone just sort of sang the words like they just knew what they meant and had experienced them, and you looked across the stage and you just thought, those people haven't experienced that. You hear it played on bagpipes, and it's a beautiful song played on bagpipes, but it's played in many, many different occasions where no one really stops to reflect at all on God's grace. You hear it sung from time to time. Uh, Brooke and I don't watch many of these shows anymore, but Several years ago, we liked to watch shows like The Voice or American Idol or singing competitions on television. And it seems like there's always someone who sings Amazing Grace as their audition song or as their performance song. And, you know, I I don't know all of those people, but some of the times you watch those shows and you see the person singing that song and you think, I don't think you know what it means. I'm not sure you understand what you're really singing about. Amazing grace as a song is really not all that amazing to us anymore. Neither is grace in the United States. And in the Reformation, they found themselves in a very similar situation. Grace just wasn't that amazing to most people. Everybody knew about grace, people talked about grace, but it just some, wasn't something, excuse me, it wasn't something that captivated people and stirred their hearts. And the Reformers, Thought that was a problem and wanted to change that. So here's a quote to start from Charles Spurgeon. He did not live in the Reformation, but he's an heir of the Reformation. And this is something he said about grace. If any man be saved, he is saved by divine grace and divine grace alone. And the reason of his salvation is not to be found in him, but in God. We're not saved as the result of anything we do or that we will, but we will and do as the result of God's good pleasure and the work of his grace in our hearts. That's sort of what we're trying to drive at. So let's wind the clock back and let's go back to Roman Catholicism before the Reformation. What was in the air about grace before Luther and Calvin and some of these other guys popped up? Rome believed that grace was required for salvation. Okay, We want to be fair to the Catholic position. They believed grace was required for salvation. However, they also believed in the ability of sinful people to cooperate with God in the process of their salvation, as well as the church's authority to extend forgiveness. We're going to flesh that out and talk about what that means. But they believed that... Human beings could cooperate with God in this process of salvation that we had something to add to the mix, and they believed in Rome's ability to extend forgiveness or their authority. So let's start off with uh, something called semi-Pelagianism. Sometimes it's just called Pelagianism. It's rooted in a guy whose name was Pelagius, and he lived an awful long time before the reformers ever came around. We're talking around the 400s way, way back in church history, and Pelagius had lots of debates with the famous church father, Augustine, and the root of their debates was, what is the condition of human beings? What is the condition of man? And Pelagius said, look, you know, the world's a rotten place, but people are born basically good. They show up and, you know, it's kind of like maybe you're a blank slate. You could go one way, you could go the other, but... For the most part, Pelagius said people are pretty much good people and, you know, they need a little help from God. Everybody needs a little help from God. He wouldn't deny that. But he started with the idea that human beings are pretty much good. And Augustine pushed back against that and said, absolutely not. Human beings are not born good. And some people look back on Augustine and they say, Augustine, he's the one who invented the idea of original sin. We'll talk about original sin later. He didn't invent it. He just clarified it when a prominent person stood up and started teaching something that no one had ever believed before. Right? Everyone sort of has this understanding of sin, and then here pops up this guy Pelagius saying, hey, you know, sin's not that big a deal. We're all pretty good. You're good. I'm good. Everybody's pretty good. And Augustine says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we need to clarify here. He's not inventing anything, he's just clarifying what the church had always believed. You can go back and look in in church history, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic, and the church sided with Augustine. So this is an old, old debate. Let's bring it up into the Reformation. There was a guy named Erasmus. That's Erasmus on the right, and that's our friend Martin Luther on the left, And they basically jump into this exact same debate that Pelagius and Augustine had. They just sort of pick up right where these guys left off. And Erasmus says, look, we all know sin is a real thing, and it sort of weakens us. It weakens our ability to come to God and to please God. But we can still do good things. We can still sort of choose the right, we still have the ability to do good things and contribute to our salvation with God. That was Erasmus. And the church stood behind Erasmus 100%, the Catholic church. And Erasmus wrote a book called The Diatribe. And in The Diatribe, he lays all this out. And he says, look, you know, we all know sin is real, but people are basically, they're okay. We can Help God in this process. We contribute to our salvation. We can move towards God on our own. We're not totally helpless. Enter Martin Luther. And at the end of Luther's life, he said, you can burn all of my books and forget them except one, a book called The Bondage of the Will. He said, this is the one you need to remember. Forget everything else I ever wrote. This is a guy who wrote volumes and volumes and volumes of commentaries who preached volumes and volumes of volumes of sermons that got put into written form. And he said, this is the one that you need to remember. And in this book, he takes Erasmus to task. Uh, Luther was trained as a lawyer, and he pulls out every lawyer trick in the book, and he just goes through the diatribe by Erasmus. And one of the fun things about reading Luther is he's just kind of to the point. And he just kind of says what he thinks. And so he'll be talking about Erasmus and what he's saying. And just to put it into a modern paraphrase, he just sort of says, Erasmus, you're an idiot. This is insanity. This is a million miles from biblical teaching. It's not even close. And systematically, completely dismantles everything that Erasmus argued for in the diatribe. So you see this debate... Uh, going on, the church siding with Erasmus, saying, sin weakens us, but we're still able to cooperate with God. There's this issue of papal authority, okay? What did the church teach about our need for grace? Well, the church taught that the pope held the keys of the church, the keys of St. Peter, and the idea behind that is that the church has the authority to forgive sins And essentially to release people from purgatory. Purgatory is not something you'll find in the Bible. It was a a much later Catholic addition to thought and canon and teaching. And there's this idea that, you know, if you're if you're not really bad, but you're not good enough, you'll end up in this middle spot called purgatory. And basically, you need to go there to sort of work off some of your mistakes and some of your sins. Once you Work them off or pay for them or you suffer for them, then you'll get into heaven eventually. And the church said, you know, the the pope has the keys to the kingdom and the pope can let people in and out of purgatory. He controls that. For a fee, we may let you out early. For a fee, we may let your grandmother out early. If you do enough penance, we may shave off some years from what you're going to have to spend In purgatory, if you participate in the Mass, if you participate in the sacraments, which we're about to talk about, all of these things help you. And uh, Luther responded I didn't have room to put this on your notes, but here's a, a response from Luther. If the Pope has the power to release anyone from purgatory, why in the name of love does he not abolish purgatory by letting everyone out? Like, let's quit playing games here. If you can empty purgatory and you have the keys, well, let's just be done with it and move on. So there's this idea of papal authority in the air. And then there are the sacraments. As Protestants, we acknowledge two sacraments, or we tend to call them ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Catholic tradition, there are seven. Baptism, confirmation, penance, mass, marriage, anointing the sick, and holy orders. And this is just sort of a a sketch drawing of a very old stained glass window in a Catholic church. And uh, the sketch drawing was a little bit clearer to see than the stained glass. But you can see some of the uh, the ideas there and the, the symbolism of different things. Those are the seven sacraments. And this is important to understand for what Luther was pushing back against. The church taught that when you do these seven things, they work. They're effective. And the Latin phrase that they used and still use is ex Opere operato ex opere operato. And I'm not a Latin scholar, but I've looked it up in a handful of different places to try to figure it out. And the basic idea is, from the work worked. From the work worked. And the idea is, if you do the thing, one of the seven sacraments, that's how you get grace. You do something and God's response to you is grace. You do a little bit of penance, you get some grace. You participate in, uh, in the last rites, you get a little bit of grace. You participate in baptism, you get a little bit of grace. You do something, and God's response to you is grace. I, I read this in a book. I think it's a brilliant summary of the Catholic idea of grace. The Catholics at this time, in official Catholic dogma today, says this is where we started grace is necessary you need grace but they also think that you have something to contribute to your salvation and it's kind of like the idea how many of you wake up in the morning and you have a little bit of trouble going till you have that first cup of Folgers right like you wake up and you're just not at a hundred percent and your brain's a little foggy, and you're moving kind of slow, and you're kind of moaning and groaning, and you're not speaking clearly, and you're sort of short with people. You're not at your best. And then you have that jolt of caffeine. You sort of get a spiritual Red Bull in you, and it sort of picks you up, and now you're ready for the day. That's the, Id- the idea, essentially, in the Catholic teaching about sin and grace at that time and still teaching today. Sin weakens you. It's real. It has an effect on you. But you're still up and moving, you know. You're not just totally dead, flatlined. You're up and you're going. You just need a little boost, spiritually speaking. You just need a spiritual Red Bull, and that's where grace comes in. Just a little sort of kick in the seat. To get you going in the right direction so that you can contribute and participate in the process of your salvation. Now look, they didn't have this equipment back in Luther's day, but, uh, so this is a little anachronistic. But what the reformers would say to that is, you don't even wake up in the morning. You're stone cold out. Dead. And you don't need somebody to pour a little Red Bull down your throat. You need the defibrillator pads to come and shock you back to life. That's grace in the the reformer's mindset. It's not just a little boost that gets you going or keeps you going, but you're dead, flatlined, and you need something to bring you back to life. So here's the Reformation teaching. When the reformers spoke about grace alone, they were saying that sinners have no claim upon God, none at all. God owes them nothing but punishment for their sins. And if he saves them in spite of their sins, which he does in the case of those who are being saved, it is only because it pleases him to do it and for no other reason. That's a quote from James Boyce in his book about the solas. It's not that you were sort of up, stumbling around, making a best effort, and then God comes in to sort of give you the boost over the top. It's that God saved you by his grace, and your contribution was nothing. It was all of God's grace. That's the quote we read from Spurgeon earlier, and that's the idea here. Let's just look at a few quotes from Luther that sort of help us wrap our minds around what he's trying to say. Luther says this, A man cannot be thoroughly humbled... Until he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works. And it depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. It's not your doing. You don't make the first move. You don't make any move. God makes the first move and God brings you to life. Here's a quote. I'll put this one up on the screen and I don't think I had room for this one on your notes. This is Luther reflecting on his time as a monk, thinking about how hard he tried to be good. Okay, This is what he says. It's true. I was a good monk, and I kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get into heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. If any of the monks were good enough, he's saying, it would have been me. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this. If it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works, and yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left this out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, The more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. So in the monastery, Luther is trying to work his way in. And his mindset is, God's coming along and he's giving me the little, you know, the kick in the seat, the little spiritual red bull to to get me going and get me over the hump. And he just says, look, if anybody was going to get over the hump, it would have been me and I just couldn't do it. My conscience would not let up. I knew I wasn't good enough. I was a great monk, but that wasn't enough to make myself right with God. Luther says this, this is on your notes, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes double guilty. If you think you do something so that God then responds to you with grace, all you're really doing is adding sin on top of sin. If you think you do something so that God gives you grace, it's not grace. It's something you've earned. It's your wages. It's your due. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. The last one is a great statement. He said, we are beggars. This is true. When he died, they found that scrawled on a piece of paper and shoved it in his pocket. It wasn't exactly his last words, but it sort of lives on as part of his last testament. We are beggars. This is true. We don't have anything to offer God. We don't come to God with anything in our hands so that he then gives us grace. We're just beggars with absolutely nothing. So that's Luther's take on it. Now let's jump into the Bible and let's see if he's on track at all. Biblical teaching about this idea of grace. Now, you may think, okay, we're jumping into the Bible. Let's look up all the verses that say grace, and let's talk about them. But before you look at any verse that talks about grace, you've got to have a biblical understanding of your condition, This is really the heart of the debate between uh, Pelagius and Augustine. It's the heart of the debate between Erasmus and Luther. And it's the heart of the debate for us tonight. What is our condition apart from God's grace? Let's try to nail that down. So here's a few thoughts. The doctrine of original sin explains the inherited fallen condition of all people. So when we talk about original sin... Some of you, in your mind, you go back to Adam and Eve and you say, ah, that was the original sin. And that was, in a sense, the first sin. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin is the idea that from birth, from conception, you're a sinner. Before you do any sinful thing, you are a sinful person and you inherit that from Adam. You are born that way. You are born with this sinful bent. David talks about it in Psalm 51, verse 5. Look what he says there. He's committed heinous, heinous sins. He has committed adultery. He's tried to cover it up. He's murdered a man. He's, he's sacrificed the lives of many other soldiers who died in this attempted cover-up. He's implicated as general in the whole thing. He's sinned against the people by not leading them into battle. He's sinned against his own family. And as he's confessing this sin in Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's one of the few verses I memorized in the NIV version. And I think in the NIV it says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Whatever translation you like, what David is saying is, I showed up here a sinner. And this is something you got to get straight in your brain. We would like to think we're sinful people because we have done sinful things. You do sinful things, that makes you a sinful person. But the biblical teaching is the opposite of that. The biblical teaching is you are a sinner, and that's why you do sinful things. That's what Luther's driving at. That's what David's driving at. I didn't put this one on your on your notes, but flip over to Romans 5. That's what Paul's driving at in Romans chapter 5. I know in the United States of America we don't think it's really fair. That someone else's mistake would count as our mistake. But God wasn't asking for our vote when he set it up this way. So this is the way he set it up. Romans 5 verse 12. He said, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, a type of the one to come. The free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, it says, judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. For all who were in Adam. Verse 18 says one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19 says by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Adam's sin counts for you and you inherit it and that's the idea of original sin. And Luther's writing and he's agreeing with Augustine and he's saying look you show up with this sinful bent. That's the reason you do sinful things is that your heart is tainted with sin. So that's original sin. Next, the doctrine of total depravity explains the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. You may have heard somebody talk about total depravity before. and you've, It sort of sounds like when you hear that, that phrase roll off the tongue, it sounds like we're saying people are as bad as they could possibly be. That's not what the doctrine teaches. That's not what we're saying. What this doctrine teaches is that sin affects every area of who we are. Every part of us is, is tainted by sin. So look at Genesis 6, 5. Genesis 6, 5. The text says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It doesn't say that people were going around committing every sin they could possibly commit at every second outwardly. But it's saying every intention of their heart, at the core of who they are, is warped by sin. And it's only evil continually all the time. We're thoroughly corrupted by sin. Next, biblical teaching. The Bible explains that left to ourselves... We're spiritually dead, we're slaves of sin, and we're enemies of God. Spiritually dead, we're slaves of sin, and we're enemies of God. Flip over and look at Ephesians 2. Some of these verses are so clear that it ought to just forever, for once and for always, put some of these debates to rest. But Ephesians 2, to me, is one of those passages. Paul says, you, he's talking about the believers in Ephesus, before they were saved, before they heard the gospel, before they they repented and believed, he said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, we carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 5 says, again, we were dead in our trespasses. This is where Luther comes back and and Calvin comes back, and Augustine comes back, and all these guys say, Look, it's not like you just wake up groggy in the morning and you need a little coffee to get you going, and that's a picture of your spiritual condition. You don't wake up, you're dead spiritually. You're like Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus didn't come out to Jesus and then Jesus welcomed him out, he's dead. He makes no movement to Jesus until Jesus calls him to come out. And that's what Paul's describing here spiritual death. Look at John chapter 8, back to the left in your Bible. John 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them truly truly I say to you everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin it's not just that you do bad things occasionally it's that you show up here with a heart that's dead that you inherit Adam's sin that you're sinful from birth from the time you're conceived That that sin results in you doing sinful things and that when you do those sinful things, John 8, 34, you are then enslaving yourself to sin. You don't have the ability to free yourself. You're totally enslaved on a spiritual level. Look at Romans 8, 7 to 8. One last verse here. Romans 8, 7, and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not only does it does not, but he says it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot. They don't have the ability to please God. And so the summary of all this is left to ourselves, we're spiritually dead, We're slaves of sin, and we're enemies of God. There's more bad news, and then we have some good news. The last piece of bad news is this. The Bible insists that apart from God's grace, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. This, again, is one of those things that is so clear. I don't know how you can miss it if you've read the Bible. Look at Romans 3. We'll start in verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. We've already charged that all, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and you notice in your Bible that the, the formatting changes, which means this is a quote. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And if you follow the footnote down, In my Bible, it's footnote A on this page, and you go down to the bottom, and it says this is a quote from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and you may remember when we went through the book of Psalms not too long ago, we talked about those two Psalms. They're almost identical Psalms, word for word, almost exactly the same. Twice in the book of Psalms, the same idea you'll find, and Paul lifts it out. He puts it in Romans 3, and he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You add all that up together original sin and depravity, and we're dead and we're slaves and we're enemy and no one seeks God. You add all that up and you say, well, that's just kind of pessimistic. It is. It's bleak. It's beyond bleak. It's hopeless. This is not the person who just needs a little spiritual boost to earn their way with God. This is a person who is totally incapable of making any move to God unless he responds to them or unless he comes to them, not responds, but he comes to them in his grace. And so the Bible describes salvation as the gracious work of the triune God. The gracious work of the triune God. I'll let you look at Ephesians 1 and 1 John 4. Let's just look at Ephesians 2. Since we were in Ephesians 2 a minute ago. Ephesians 2. We'll start up in verse 1 again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked... Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, that's grace. This is who you were, but God did something. He was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. We'll talk about faith in a couple of weeks. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 1 describes the role of the Father and the role of the Son and the role of the Spirit in salvation. And all of it, Paul says it over and over again in Ephesians 1, is to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His grace. It's all for God's glory, and it's all a result of His grace. 1 John 4.10 says, This is not love that we love God, but love is that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. The, The Father and the Son working together, not because we did anything to come to Him, but that he made uh, the effort, and he took the initiative to come to us. So what are the modern challenges? And we'll wrap this up, and this will be be pretty quick. Modern challenges. I think there's two big ones, right? For Luther and the Reformers, the modern challenges or the, the historical challenges were Rome saying, eh, you're Weakened by sin, but you can still pull some of your own weight. You just need a little help. And Rome saying, this is how you receive grace. You do something, you make the first move, and then God responds to you with grace. You do the sacraments, and then God gives you grace. Those were the challenges for Luther. I think these are two challenges for us. One is something called moral therapeutic deism. And we've talked about that. There's a sociologist from North Carolina named Christian Smith, and he studies, he's an ongoing researcher, he's still alive, he studies the religious beliefs of young people in the United States of America. He just sort of strips it down and asks the right questions and crunches the data, and once he asks all the questions and figures out what these young people are saying, he says this is what they really believe as a a group in mass. In his summary is something called moral therapeutic deism. It's the idea that we see God as someone up there who basically wants us to be moral. Just be good. Be a nice person. And he's kind of like a cosmic therapist. So in our society, many times people go to a therapist because they feel rotten and they want to feel better. And that idea plays into our projections about God and we see God as this big guy up there who just wants us to feel better about ourselves to have good self-image positive self-esteem and he just wants us to sort of feel good about everything and deism is this idea that there is a God most Americans still believe there is a God they just believe he's up there and he really doesn't have much to do with our day-to-day lives just don't really interact with him on a regular basis he's really not here and present and so he comes up with this term moral therapeutic deism and the the long and short of it is younger generations in the United States tend to see God as a genie you know as like a better version of Dr. Phil some guy that's just up there and he just wants it to be nice for us and comfortable for us and wants you to be a decent person and he's there just to sort of make you feel good about everything and when things are bad you kind of go to him and expect him to fix everything but when everything's okay you just you don't really worry about him too much he's there but you don't you don't really have any interaction with him and I think if that's the prevailing idea of young people in the United States of America And by young people, I mean like 40 and down. If that's the prevailing view, why do they even need grace? Why do they even care about grace? There's no idea that God is a transcendent, holy God. There's no idea that God is the judge to whom we'll have to give an account. There's no idea that God is righteous and angry with sin. There's certainly no idea that we are sinful people. We're just sort of good folks, moral folks, and God's there to make things easier for us, better for us, nicer for us. These are people that if you go and you say to them, have you experienced amazing grace, their eyes are just going to roll back in their head. They don't even have a category for what you're talking about. So that's one challenge for us. The other is just a, a... a parallel idea, but it's just human goodness. I think if you talk to most people today where we live, let's just think about Bible Belt, West Texas. I think most people where we live tend to believe in a God. I think most people where we live would be quick to admit that they are not perfect. Very few people are going to look you in the eyeball and say they're perfect. People will admit, hey, I've got my Hang-ups and my issues and my baggage and my junk. People will admit that to you. But will they admit that they're sinners? Mm, That's a different thing altogether. Will they admit to you that they're left to themselves enemies of God? That their sins have separated them from God? That their sins have placed them under God's wrath? You are children of wrath. Will they admit to you that their sins make them slaves to sin, followers of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience? He's saying, you used to follow the devil. You maybe didn't participate in satanic rituals, but that's who you followed. So I think you've got all these people that would say, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect, but then a admitting and confessing and acknowledging a biblical view of sin and our condition, I think people were are a million miles away from that. And if that's your view of the human condition, again, why do you need grace? If your biggest problem is that you're just not perfect, you just need a boost. And the Reformers came along and they echoed Augustine and they echoed the Apostle Paul and they echo exactly what we need to hear today and that is, you don't need a little boost. You need grace. Amazing grace. You are lost and you need to be found. You are blind and you need to be given sight. You are dead and you need to be given life. And when these guys went out and they preached the biblical doctrine of sin, and people saw it for themselves in the scriptures, Grace became an amazing thing, and people responded to God's grace. And I think the same thing can happen today. I think if our approach to ministry is just to sort of water things down and to make people feel comfortable, and we don't want to confront anybody, we just want everyone to feel sort of comfortable coming and participating and being in church, why will they ever think that grace is amazing? It'll just be another song they sing, like the ones you see on TV and the ones you hear at every funeral and the ones that the bagpipes play and the interfaith folks sing it all together, kumbaya. It's just another song. It's just another idea. It's just sort of a warm, fuzzy thing. But when we confront people with the biblical truth about who they are as sinners and who God is as a holy God, then grace became becomes an amazing thing. And that was what the reformers were trying to drive at, is God's grace, and that it is amazing. So, that is grace alone, sola gratia.